And now, and now, the best of Pete Price. The best of Pete Price. On Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9. Right now, I'd like to do an interview with somebody I've wanted to do for so long. He is a fascinating man. Now, this is what I call a journalist. This is what I call an investigator. This is what I call doing something with your life. Donald McIntyre. Hello, Donald. Hello. God, I hope I don't disappoint, but thank you so much for that. I've been such a fan. I, I really do. I'm a fan because there's there's been a few people like you over the years that have stood out and have actually told stories that you think, oh, my goodness, they've got some bottle doing that. How did you start? Well, I, you know, I'm, um, I have a kind of natural affinity with the underdog, being Irish. And uh, I started out in local newspapers in Ireland and I started working for the BBC, BBC Documentaries and, and, and Manchester. And uh, I suppose the, um, I remember starting out in a newspaper in Ireland and it was a, it, we were working only four days a week and it, it didn't really stretch me. And I decided that um, I was a bit bored with covering the um the dogs are, are not just for Christmas type story, which is the typical story a young journalist would be given. So during the war in Beirut, um, I decided for my holidays from work, I'd go and I'd go and report on the war in Beirut just because I could. And then I realized I'm, there was a bit of a missing gene there, as did my employers. And then I ended up doing some undercover stuff uh, for the BBC. Uh, and uh, it all started off from there. When did it start to become fearful? When did it, when did you realise you were going down a path that really was something different? Well, you know, when I was in Beirut and I spent some time in Yugoslavia, it, um, until something really bad hits you, uh, a bomb blows up beside you, somebody loses a leg, and until then, when you're in a war zone, it does actually appear just a little bit like an arcade game. And you start out growing, uh, you know, because it's just an amazing thing to do. You've got an affinity for the underdog. There's a bit of ego driving you there, and you want a bit of byline. I used to call it byline stress disorder, where you'd say to your parents, look at my byline, aren't I great? And after you get through that, um, you realize that actually um, you can do something good here. Um, but I've always had a very optimistic kind of outlook in life, so I've never really kind of uh, dwelt upon the dangerous times. But, you know, it was, it was in Liverpool, I suppose, when my closest shave with death came and in the shadow of Anfield Football Stadium in a, in a crack house there where I was on a research trip. And um, uh, I was just talking about a, a, a very famous drug story, uh, which I won't go into now, but basically I was talking to somebody who was involved in the fringes of that, and he was a crack addict, and he was smoking crack, and had been smoking crack for three or four days, and there were kids running around the place, and I was really offended at this, and, you know, um, so I thought it the kids were at risk and my producer friend was there beside me and you know we were having a headache from the crack smoke haze and uh, eventually the uh, the guy ran upstairs and my producer looked at me and he said mm, this isn't very good he said Donald and I said mm, oh I'll be fine and then I heard the steps coming and lashing down the stairs and he said oh Donald this does not sound good and I said nah I'll be fine Next thing you know, the guy came around the corner and he was like a whippet. And he straddled me, from jumped, straddled me and drilled a Luger-type gun straight into my neck for three minutes, two and a half minutes, drill, drill, drill. And it was like carpet burns in my neck and he was screaming and shouting. 
and my uh, producer talked him down like he would talk down his uh, his four-year-old kid from knocking over a bit of a uh, kind of Waterford crystal from the uh, mantelpiece. And he said, now, now, now there, buddy, listen, settle down. Somebody's going to get hurt. And he talked down the guy and he'd been on crack cocaine for three days. And then he stood back and he cracked open the gun. And you've seen the shot and I've seen it in the movies and, and uh, in slow-mo. And I thought, okay. And I saw the bullet pop up in the air and I followed it. And I hit the ground, boom, boom, three times. And he chucked the gun violently behind the sofa. And he sat down and we continued the conversation where we left off. And that was, uh, I went home to the hotel afterwards I, by myself in Liverpool, one of the hotels there. And I had a, a bottle of wine by myself and I had a cry and I was fine the next morning. But then I realised, yeah, this is, um, this can get dangerous. Donald, do you, do you get people, do, is it difficult to get teams to work with you? Uh, well, you know, mostly I take the. I like to walk that line myself, and there's always a job on abroad when, you know, if there is an acute danger, I feel the responsibility. While it's a team affair, that I will want to be the person who will take that greatest of risk. But you know, I mean, these are a rare moments. But in every undercover job, uh, there is a moment like that. Or if you're in a war zone, uh, there's something like that will attend to it. But you know, we don't do this unless we feel it's important. And you know, oddly enough, the most important story I've ever done was a care home. You know, uh, undercover and care homes. I've done four of those programs and there was no particular danger to me at all. Um, and uh, yet there the, uh, I know people concentrate on the unusual, uh, which was the, uh, the kind of stories which, re- which require bravery and courage. But um, yeah, no, we have plenty of people willing to work with me, but um, yeah, I hope <laughs> still. Without uh, uh, prying into your private life, sure. uh, I'm sure you have a private life, you must have problems there. You must have moved a few times. Yeah, no, um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, part of my job is that because I have the skill for surviving undercover or in danger, the uh, controller of BBC One said I was only really any good when my life was in serious jeopardy. Then uh, I found myself doing jobs which have consequences and people giving threats. And, and one way, if you are doing investigative journalists and you're upsetting people, gangsters, criminals, you know, even them, you know, um, upsetting the apple cart, then you're doing a job. And, um, you know, I've got my fair share of threats moved many many times and most recently a lot tougher obviously with a family and young kids and uh, it got an awful lot tougher um and uh, kind of uh, when myself and my wife but when my wife got beaten up for uh some work which i had done and that uh, is something which you would kind of uh, couldn't really wish upon your worst enemy have you any idea how many times you've changed your phone uh, you know what? I have never changed my phone. No. You know, I have never changed a phone. And I give my phone number more or less to every kind of gangster. Anybody do a program with me, they have it. And, you know, and uh, most people are pretty respectful for it. But I've had the same phone. Only had one. Occasionally, I might have jumped up and tried to have a second one and tried to kind of create a, a private and public phone. But I'm too disorganized. I, would, it just, I said, fine, I have one number. And uh, uh, I don't take calls from numbers I don't know. So uh, I suppose... <laughs> <laughs> that is the way. But I've had plenty of threats on Twitter, and uh, one recently, which is very offensive, which the police are currently investigating, uh, which, um, yeah, you just can't believe people say the things they do on Twitter. And, you know, I'll take it. They can say anything they want about me. Yeah. But uh, one of the, the tweets said, uh, you, da-da-da-da, grass, you know, wish Chelsea had killed you and your wife. Yeah. Now, you know, you, you know, 
I'll take the offense, the offense. But you know, I mean, why would you say that about my wife? And that was a high-profile reference, a high-profile attack where my wife, who had a brain tumor at the time, was beaten up when she sought to try and defend me when I was beaten up by uh, a group of ten um, thugs. And because, and although, uh, and it, it kind of percolates the problem. So you get beaten up, and it's very distressing. And do you go to court with it? And your wife says, "I don't really want to go to court." And we say, "Okay, we go to court. We convict these guys." The police, you know, the witnesses. Uh, to the assault are terrified because they think, okay, this is a revenge case for a program which you did, Mr. McIntyre. You know, what's going to protect us? This is in their mind. So when it goes to court, only one is convicted. And it's, you know, so it's, it's self-perpetuating. And I remember when I was in the jury, not only was my wife given a terrible time by the uh, prosecution, by the defense barrister, but also um, the uh, jury gave a note to the judge to say, um, where are all the witnesses? And the point being is that, you know, the witnesses in the pub said that if if this high-profile witness, a reasonably high-profile journalist like me, cannot be protected from revenge attacks, you know, uh, that doesn't give them any uh, confidence that they won't be protect, uh, that they won't be uh, subjected to the same attacks as a witness. So, you know, it was very traumatic. But we're pulling through it, and I could have done without this recent tweet. But uh, you know, there is a little sense when you're in the public eye, you have to take a little bit of that. And uh, but you know, when it crosses the line, I think you have to bark. Mm. Donald, you want to see the crap that's written about me. Um, I've had two court cases and two Twitters closed down. I, I just get sick of it. And I'm getting it. I'm an older man now and I've just had enough. You know, you think, well, I don't deserve that. I'm sorry, I don't deserve that. But that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're just trying to do professional. At the end of the day, we're, although we might be in the public eye, we're, you know, we're normal people. We have bills to pay. We have children to hug and kids to put to bed and nappies to change. And we have kind of family to call and support. And everybody's got personal issues. And I think if you want to dehumanize people, it's a bit like racism. If you want to dehumanize people and put them in a, in a territory where you can just uh, blanketly abuse them with any cause or concern, then uh, then that is uh, offensive. And, you know, we're entitled to a certain degree of privacy. But listen, uh, you know, uh, my line is, you know, I can understand how they might attack me, but crossing the line and wishing my wife to be dead, I think, uh, and killed yeah. is, uh, is is beyond the pale. Don't know. Apart from, and we'll talk about this in a minute, at home with the Noonans, because I know you're incredibly proud of this piece. What What is the biggest thing that you love that you've done that you think, wow, apart from this, which we're going to talk about? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I mentioned there my care home investigations, which I think is the best investigation I've done. Very, very important because we'll all be in care homes. And I grew up in the town in Salbridge where, where the biggest industry was a care home with the St. John of God. It was very good. And everybody had their home open and doors open to the learning disabled. And, you know, they all came and left the homes on a Sunday and came to our open doors for, um, you know, for Sunday dinner. And then to come, and I knew it was a really important story here. And we've done four or five of them and the BBC and uh, you know ITV and Granada have continued the great tradition over the last 10 years so that's a really important issue you know I, I, I so I loved doing those programs they're important I loved living with the tribes in Papua New Guinea and in Borneo and particularly with the insect tribe in Papua New Guinea and then as a kind of uh, pastoral stone age kind of lifestyle hunting crocodiles with spears and then I brought that tribe home to live with me in England and some family other families over here and uh, which was just a marvel just fantastic but um, yeah so there you know I have a varied and wonderful kind of life and adventures and I've just come back last week um, rescuing dolphins 
in 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 uh, in Turkey. A story I was working with Born Free and and Helen Worth, Coronation Street's Helen Worth. We've been both promoting uh, the cause of captive dolphins kept in tiny pools in, in Turkey toxic water and we found these two dolphins on death's door and uh, we, we supported a two-year re- rehabilitation campaign and I negotiated their uh, their uh, rescue from a group of shady Russian businessmen and and uh, released, saw them released back into the wild last week and now they're you know uh, returning to the waters from where they were first captive a couple of hundred miles away where we were from where we we released them with Born Free last week that was on daybreak and uh, so you know uh, and the kids are wonderfully involved in that and they're so you know tell us about the dolphins and so it's very good to be able to include them on a kind of night story uh, that doesn't involve bad language and gangsters what comes over to me is that it sounds a bit of a drug your career well you know i think listen what I'm just very, very lucky and I will always seek those opportunities that come my way and I love a different experience. But it is not an adrenaline rush and I think it's something which I've been accused of before because it's just not me. I've one foot on the, you know, it doesn't give me an exhilaration to kind of, you know, uh, uh, to be in a war zone. I mean, I, it, it was always fun. I just found it exciting in the first instance but once you grow up it's not you know I don't get some big rush of adrenaline some kind of you know uh, hit that uh, you constantly need to replace because my life has got quieter and uh, I've tried to move into quieter zones but um, it's always about trying to do the best I can do and if amazing opportunities come my way then I'm uh, uh, I'm loath to refuse them and if the important stories are important enough to tell then I'm delighted to be able to work with some of the best broadcasters in the world in this country to try and you know uh, find a way of telling it and sometimes that might be a straight documentary sometimes it might be undercover and very dangerous Donald um, how do you find a family like the Noonans well, you know, um, I'd spent about 10 years going undercover, and so my undercover career was kind of deliberately kind of, uh, I deliberately made myself unemployable by being up front of camera, which was fine, and I decided to do a confrontational series with gangsters. I was going to do a, a kind of, uh, trying to humiliate some very serious gangsters who've got loads of cash, and big cars, and no means of, of earning it, and I thought, that's wrong. Let me try and do a kind of, play a, a trick on them and uh, embarrass them, and a series called Prankster gangster which has never been made anyway so i went to befriend one of these guys and get to know the criminal fraternity up close and personal and i went to uh, belmarsh crown court and i saw dominic noonan one of the noonan clan from manchester and uh, he came up to me and he said oi uh, my brother was offered a contract to kill you and i said well he's not very good then is he and uh, we got chatting and um, i hadn't expected these guys to uh, to want to talk to me. In the event, they were happy to talk to me. And the reason why he particularly was happy to talk to me then was because he's a kind of charismatic guy, kind of likes the limelight, but he was facing 25 years in jail, thought he was going to go down on a major charge. In the end, he didn't. And uh, But he kept up uh, the conversation and I filmed, started filming with him 10 years ago and we've more or less uh, kept filming around him and his uh, family's life um, you know, while he's been in and out of prison. You built up an interesting relationship with him. Yeah, I mean, he's a, I mean, he's an extraordinary character. So as a, as a filmmaker, as a journalist, you'll recognize, you know, he's a gay, Urdu-speaking gangster who um, 
you know, as one of 14 children, changed his name by Deepole to a, uh, a, a, a from Dominic Noonan to an acronym for what his father always says to look after those, look after you, Mr. Latley Fotfoy. So, Mr. Look after those, look after you, Mr. F off those that mm-mm off you. So this is a man who goes to court and gives him his name. He also, um, as I say, speaks Urdu. He set up his own alternative police force. Uh, he does stand-up comic and is also a very dangerous and, and be times violent character. So um, all these eccentricities make for an extraordinary, you know, character to study. Um, and uh, so it was kind of... Uh, there's a dance, you know, because I've seen a lot of the world. I've stepped over dead bodies in Mexico, victims of the drug cartels over there. I've been in war zones. And a lot of gangsters like Dominic recognize that I have seen a lot of bad things in the world. Now, I haven't perpetrated them, and some of the, those gangsters may have perpetrated, but they see a kind of moral equivalency between me and them. And uh, uh, I'm not scared of them. So we built a, a certain element of respect and that allowed me to kind of film uh, in around the world without ever being contaminated by any of their criminality. Was there anywhere you couldn't go with him? Was there any, well, any, 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 did you feel that, wow, I've got to hold back here? Well, no, I, it was because we wouldn't want to go uh, any place. Uh, it never occurred. It never um, really was an issue because we wouldn't go anywhere and didn't want to hear anything about contemporary crime. We wanted to kind of reveal the way they lived, how they lived, but not anything about their criminality. And the criminality of the, those in and around the family were revealed pretty graphically in court cases where Dominic has been charged with heroin, um, holding heroin. He's been charged with kidnapping and torture and obviously bank robbery and prison escape. It's a, a long list of, of things. So we didn't have to establish that he was a gangster or how bad he was. And we had no interest in uh, uh, compromising ourselves by uh, filming or even recording any discussions about crime. But, you know, I think you get to learn an awful lot about the world from, you know, the, you know their, their Sunday dinners, their family life, the police knocking on the door every uh, two weeks. Um uh, and just watching the spit and sawdust of their daily lives. It was kind of a shameless meets the Sopranos, is how um, some person, one person described it. And American audiences uh, thought that Dominic is very much like a kind of Manchester Tony Soprano, obviously, though, you know, he's uh, some ill-fitting Italian suits, and, of course, he's gay. Do the police get irritated by the work you do? Well, you know, they have been irritated in the past. And when we did the first version of uh, the Noonans called The Very British Gangster, which went around the world at the Sundance and went to cinema release around the world, uh, they were irritated and they went for um, an application to have the film banned uh, on the grounds that it might interfere with their current investigation. They got impressed and they got uh, released from one high court judge, but five minutes in London it was thrown out. Uh, I, I, I love the fact that at the same time as they went and lost an action to ban one film about the Noonans, uh, another part of my um, filming team were filming with the Greater Manchester Police uh, with their car crime unit. And that is kind of how it should be. The, uh, the press should always keep the police on their toes and work with them when they need cooperation and it's reasonable to, and also challenge them uh, when they need challenging. He, he was openly gay. Yeah. What was he like over his 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 sexuality? Well, I mean, he uh, well, I found it really interesting because in some quarters, 
Uh, when I suppose when he was running, when I first met him, there's no doubt that if he was a gay, uh, journalist and gay 10, 12, 15 years ago, people would have said, oh, he's the gay journalist, you know, if he was openly gay. Whereas uh, in his community, he wasn't ever described as really the gay gangster. You know, it was understood he was gay, but it was very normalized. And I thought that was very interesting. In working class Manchester, they seem to be far less homophobic than they would be in other part, uh, quarters of, uh, of Her Majesty's Kingdom. And, uh, uh, but he, he was treated in his community and is treated as, as very, very normal. And, um, you know, I suppose he has spent, and he will say this himself, much of his life in prison among a very kind of uh, exclusively male population. As he says himself in his own wanton way, that in prison he gets uh, everything he, he wants. He, he has uh, free accommodation, free food and free sex. So he'll put a funny spin on it. But, you know, he has at the same time suffered in childhood horrific uh, abuse in a uh, borstal where he was uh, brutally raped and um, uh, over many, many weeks. And so he talks graphically about that. And I suppose that incident tells me uh, an awful lot about the other people I met in the world. And I've never met uh, a violent, really, really violent man who hasn't really endured some you know, violence of equal measure, at least when they're growing up as a child. Does he have a partner? Uh, that's interesting. I think he's had lots of lovers, but no solid partner, no. Uh, adding to the enigma, there was some rumour he'd also got married, uh, not uh, uh, to a man, but to, to a woman. But uh, that was a rumour I couldn't verify. But, uh, you know, with Dominic Noonan, nothing quite surprises you. You know, when he went down to the riots in uh, 2011, um, he was initially arrested. The police were convinced that he was orchestrating the riots there. And I think he went down there out of curiosity. But uh, um, it later emerged that he'd phoned the police nine times requesting assistance to restore order. And he was seen directing wow. traffic and people away from the, the disorder. So he's a man which kind of defies conventions. But, yeah. you know, nonetheless, he is still, you know, and should always be regarded as although charismatic and funny, he is a man who's had a you know, very serious and violent criminal record. You've got fabulous reviews over this, which is, is great, and, and it shows through in your work. Did you go and watch his stand-up? Uh, you know what I did? And, you know, if he's listening in HMP Manchester, I'd have to say, I'll concur with his son Bugsy that, that he, he, he might be best to leave his, his stand-up. <laughs> Uh, and keep us in, in, inside his cell. But <laughs> How much work have you done? Have you have you got a list saying I, I've done twenty documentaries or forty or? You know, I haven't counted, but uh, you know, I'm probably in, in in the hundreds, and I probably write for various articles. Um, you know, two or three thousand, four thousand words for various newspapers a week, as well as make programs. And you know, um, you know, I love the work I do. I love the variety, um, and uh, you know, it's very, very special. And at the same time, as I've got bills to pay, like everybody else. So you know, uh, but you know, I just want to. Part of my job is to kind of uh, you want to write the things that you can write. You want to I, I mostly want to kind of tread ground that other uh, other people haven't tread. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember I, I took time out um, to read the news down in London with uh, um, uh, Nina Hussain and Katie Derham uh, down in London for about six to eight months. And uh, I was just trying to 
give the kids a quieter and more uh, steady life, you know, in, in at two o'clock coming back from the news headlines at, at 10.30. And, uh, but, you know, we soon became very clear that lots of people are, very, are much, much better, <laughs> much better news readers than I am. Uh, but it was great to work with a great team. And uh, uh, I think uh, I'm probably more productive in those areas where other people fear to tread. Are your children old enough to know how dangerous what, what you do is? Well, thankfully, they're mostly just engaged with either the dolphins or dancing and ice when I did that, and right. I did dancing and ice <laughs> for them. So, uh, although occasionally, when we str- we talk with uh, about the protection of school issue, uh, school kids at school and all this stuff in relation to our security, I did get meet one security guy who suggested I tell my children about the dangers we face so that they're aware of it. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, my kids still believe in the tooth fairy. I can't bring it in. I don't think I can tell them that, uh, you know, their parents are, are under threat like this. So it's a balance. Um, in terms, And I think, um, you know, it's something which we will have to manage as they get older. The eldest is nine and the youngest is five months at the moment. But for the moment, they're just happy occasionally seeing... Um, uh, Daddy on Dancing and Ice or uh, uh, this morning this, I was on uh, uh, five, uh, Channel 5 this morning with the chat shows talking about gangsters at home with and also talking about babies so at the moment that's my speciality gangsters and babies Well I'm not into conspiracy theories but I really believe you were undercover in Dancing on Ice. There was something more to that. <laughs> well, you know, you're very funny because, I, honestly, I was the only person in the history of, and I've never, that question has never been hit to me before. I said, well done. But I am the only person in the history of Dancing on Ice to have to sign a clause that I would not be filming undercover in Dancing on Ice. <laughs> <laughs> although, uh, although it's amazing, I could claim that. It might make uh, my sequined appearances and even my appearance in a tutu for my kids. But, you know, I did it them and they loved it and uh, I, I was quoted uh, as saying before you know please shoot me if you ever find me in a reality show and then you know um, my wife put me into it because she said, she said the kids have to see you do something you know before the watershed yeah but <laughs> okay. the, you, you say about reality show but you have to have some talent for that these reality shows where you just sit there talking is nothing that you, you really do have to have a skill when, I, I went well, ice skating once so yeah. I know how, how hard it is and I'm yeah. garbage at it just to finish off sure. what, what are what are we uh, what are we looking forward to what, what what exciting new adventure are we going to get on television well i'm i'm hoping to do a um i've got a uh a, um, uh, hoping to do some a new consumer series coming up from the broadcasters in September and it's quieter but very interesting area and um, I am looking at the area of football hooliganism again for a cinema a documentary release and uh, I'm talking to and working with a couple of other broadcasters about some other projects but uh, um, and I'm hoping sometime between that to get a holiday with the kids Like yourself I interview lots of people but I've got to tell you Tonight is a total and utter joy. I really, really want to do this for a long time. You're a very talented man who brought an awful lot of entertainment, shocks, um, stress, because I used to stress over you thinking, he's going to get belted, someone's going to belt him, someone's going to belt him. Uh, well, listen, you know, it's a, it's a great pleasure. And, you know, when I worked for the BBC, and I, it's not very fashionable to say this, but when we worked there, my life was on the line. Me and my team... Um, we recognize the great privilege 
we have of using taxpayers' money to try and do good. And, and honestly, you know, I know broadcasters, you know, get, and people in their expenses account get, get blown out of proportion. But when we were there and when we do, we do carry a good, um, genuine motivation. And so, um, and, you know, sometimes we're having fun and all this when we're doing our adventure stuff. But sometimes we really are doing our best for the public. But at, at its heart, we're just, you know, like most journalists like yourself, we're just curious and we just, you know, um, interested about the world around us and if we can leave a bit of positive footprints behind well then you know we've done a little bit of good Donald McIntyre thank you so much for tonight pleasure take care good night the best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9